Hello and welcome to the Property Roundup on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon, the show where we chat to industry experts to get a view on the new trends emerging within the property industry. Uh, the show is brought to you in partnership with Property District, your industry communications partner. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by John Hannigan, CEO of Circle BHA, um, to talk about social housing and maybe what's happening at the moment and look beyond the, the headlines, which can be very confusing. John, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Carol. Great to be here. Delighted to be on the show. Um, John, as I mentioned, when it comes to social housing delivery and in fact, all housing delivery, um, it can be difficult to look beyond the headlines. So you might just talk to us about uh, within Circle VHA, how you see the state of social housing delivery in 2023. Yeah, thanks, Carl. I agree with you. Even in the last weekend, we've seen uh, three major announcements in respect of housing policy. And I think that's one of the difficulties that we're facing is that we have multiple housing policy announcements on a, on a daily basis. And uh, I think that is confusing. I think for uh, the person who's living at home, looking at uh, what they can do in terms of getting on the ladder or not getting on the ladder, going into rented accommodation, whatever it might be, knowing where to start even is very difficult. Uh, and I actually, I've been saying in the last few, the last six months particularly, that we're, we are gone beyond a housing crisis. Uh, I think we are in a housing emergency. Um, and don't get me wrong, I do think the government are trying hard. So it's not a case of, you know, nobody's trying to do the best they can. But the reality is that I think we're not taking, I don't believe we're taking the right approaches overall. Um, we have we have more than 64,000 uh, households and people get confused with that because they say 64,000 people on the social housing waiting list. Actually, it's households. And if you take that on average, there's two to three people in each of those households. You're looking at potentially 150,000 people uh, who need housing at this point in time. That's the official list. The unofficial list also incorporates, for example, the 80,000 or more refugees that we've had come in from different areas, including uh, Ukraine, uh, and also all those who are living uh, in what's known as adequate housing, uh, as the official term, at this point in time, where they're sleeping on their mother or father's couch or they're couch surfing with friends. So I do believe we are in a very significant housing crisis. Uh, uh, sorry, housing emergency. I, I think if you look back over the last few weeks, uh, just in the last few weeks, you'll see that the number of homes that are available to rent down to single figures in certain areas, you know, which is un unsustainable in terms of a, a housing economy. So we we need to be doing an awful lot more. So I, I think we're gone from a crisis. I think crisis was what we had pre-pandemic. I think what we have now is an emergency. Um, John, thank you so much for that. And I'm, I'm really glad that you've made that point and that distinction, because that distinction is an important one. It's not just one that uh, will dictate the headlines or the media, or it's not just a soundbite. Actually, um, there's, a, there's a huge difference between a crisis and an emergency in terms of the policymaking, the speed of policymaking and how government can react. So, in fact, actually, we've had several guests over the last at least 12 months call for this to, for for our current state to be declared beyond a crisis and actually as an emergency. So from your perspective, if the government were, were to come out today and say, right, we are upgrading um, Ireland's housing crisis into an emergency, which means then they would have greater powers in terms of emergency type legislation, as we saw throughout the pandemic, what would you like to see happen to really address housing over say, say if there was a, an emergency period of 24 months declared, mm. What do you think could reasonably be done? Okay, so uh, I think one of the first things, and it's easy, 
and it can be done now, even in a crisis process, but it's not being done. The really easy one is, first of all, you get an all party group together that is focused wholly on it. Um, I'm, I am I am very uh, sure that the current government are doing all that is within their power and their thinking to actually deliver what they can at this point in time. Okay, So I don't think there's anybody shirking their responsibilities at this point in time. I don't think there's anybody not trying their best to deal with what's happening. But no single ideology is going to actually make this work. I think there is a reliance on the market, which I absolutely think is appropriate as well, uh, to actually make things happen. But it's not going to work on its own. It needs everybody, all actors working together. And I think the reality is we have too many actors who are doing their own thing as opposed to on a coordinated basis. Um, and if I take my own sector as an example, uh, we tend as approved housing bodies, housing associations, not to compete with each other. OK, because we can't. Uh, local authorities are the mediators for that uh, or moderators for that, whichever way you want to look at it. And they kind of ensure that if there's a site that's to be developed, a single approved housing body is the one who will deal with it. So if somebody makes another uh, request to do so, local authorities will go no. But we are competing against local authorities and we are competing, for example, against the LDA, Land Development Agency, and we are competing against the private sector to develop housing. And I think the reality is that it, there needs to be a greater uh, coordination process in respect of all of those different actors. There is room for everybody, and there's room for everybody to do what they need to do and to do what they're there to do. Uh, and, and from our perspective, that's to provide housing for people in need. But we actually need it on a more coordinated basis. And uh, I think until we have that, and the only way we're going to get that is if we get a coordinated basis at the policy level. And I think to get a coordinated policy process, you, you need a multi-party approach. So I would suggest that if this was a war, for example, and we were in a war, you'd find all government parties and non-government parties working together in order to be able to resolve the issue. And I think that's where we're at, actually. Um, uh, I so that's the first thing. Okay, but John, just before you move forward, I mean, you're talking about, I, I accept what you're saying, that the government are doing all within their power and within their thinking to tackle yeah. housing. Um, there is not a huge amount of diversity in our in our current government and opposition. It, like, I would it, absolutely agree. That's challenging the, the thinking that they just don't have the full scale of ability to, to think about uh, beyond their, their current ideology um, around yeah. housing delivery. And I think, I think, I mean, I, I, again, great respect for all politicians. I think the job they do is fantastic. It's not a job I would put myself forward for. So I have huge respect for what they do. But I think the reality is that when you belong to a particular party, you belong to a particular ideology, an approach. For example, the current two of the current parties in power, uh, very much market-led, very much market-driven, want the market to be the key deliverers and providers, albeit they are resourcing and funding. So you know, don't get me wrong, resourcing and funding other players within this process. But the talk is about we must have uh, more home ownership. We must allow greater home ownership. We must encourage greater home ownership. I don't know why. Uh, we have one of the highest levels of home ownership within Europe and within the world, actually. But uh, it is we falling. So from it where is. we were decades ago, actually, we have disproportionately less. Absolutely. Well, we, we've seen a greater fall than other. But actually, it still needs to fall further. I think that's the point. And what we're seeing is we have a very small private rented sector and no no economy that's thriving around the world actually has a, a small a uh, private rented housing sector as we have at this point in time. And I don't believe that we should have a huge social housing sector, which is one of the ideologies from one of the other sectors where social and affordable housing should be provided only by the public, uh, by the, the state. 
uh, I think, and it becomes public housing. I think that's not right either. I think there needs to be a greater balance. And we have two parties on opposite sides of the agendas, as it were, saying that their their ideology will work better. And the reality is we need both elements, but we need a bit in the middle that's actually protecting the landlord and the tenant that's in the private sector better because we're we're seeing more and more of those landlords leave. And even from a social housing perspective, that's a huge issue because the more landlords that leave, the more people that will become homeless or at risk of being homeless, the greater insecurity we create within our economy, the less less available homes we have for those coming in from an FDI perspective where governments and uh, sorry, companies want to invest in the country, but they're even in the short term, they can't bring their people here because there's no private rental market. So we have to do something that actually bolsters that, which will have a, a great impact on both sides of the public housing side and the housing for sale side. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing a, a, a different approach that it, and, and actually both sides of the equation talking to different policies in respect of it, where the reality is we need both moderated for the, the, the private rental sector in the middle. Um, I, I absolutely agree with you in terms of your call for balance. However, when you look at other jurisdictions that have um, a more developed, a more mature and a larger private rented sector, they have alongside that a strong, um, a strong ethos of uh, individual private investment. So people who are choosing not to go down the home ownership route when it comes to retirement age, they have a comfortable mechanism by which they can continue to rent in the private rented sector throughout their retirement. Yes. We don't have that in Ireland. So if we grow no. our private rented sector, what happens to everybody when they hit retirement age, how are they going to sustain high levels of rent? I absolutely agree. I think this is one of the key conundrums that's not been resolved and not even been addressed. I think that's, again, I've termed, I've created this term before, others have started to use it. I think it's probably right. I'm not sure it's exactly right, but it's nearly there. We need a slanted care approach to housing. Uh, because I think what Slaunch Care, whether you agree or disagree with Slaunch Care, what it did is it brought together everybody to consider all of the big issues uh, and to work on them as a single group across the different parties. We need something similar. And I think that one issue that you've addressed, we have a huge growing demographic at this point in time of older persons over 55. In 20 years time, that's going to be a significant population of the overall population, which has driven down the, the opportunity for uh, our younger people to actually sustain the state going forward. So we have to find a way to enable those older persons to be able to, uh, one, right size, if they choose to do so, but two, to be able to continue to rent in the private sector, if that's where they've been. I have a family member, I won't mention, but has been in that sector for quite a period of time and is facing quite a considerable concern for the future. They're getting uh, slightly older, slightly younger than me, but getting there and we're both getting there. Uh, they are going to face that difficulty in the future about how are they going to continue to rent? Uh, and it is it is a worry. And we don't have a solution. And I don't know but, that anybody has at this point. You know, if you look at what was done, um, you know, a decade ago through the special savings scheme, whereby, you know, if you invest X, the state supports you with Y, you know, given, given that anybody in the private rental sector, whether they're in their early 20s or they're in their 60s and 70s and beyond that, um, if, if there could be a similar allocation whereby you're paying rent, but a certain portion of that goes in to protect yourself, um, beyond retirement age or beyond the your ability to be to sustain yourself within the private rented sector uh you know this feels like a very solvable problem and when you talk about bringing all parties together um is that not what the housing commission was supposed to do 
I think, uh, well, first of all, we haven't heard from the Housing Commission on everything that they've been asked to do yet. Okay, so let's let's give them a bit of time because, yes, there is a, a, an element of their thinking or an element of the work that is to be, do around the thinking of this issue, but we haven't heard from them in respect to it yet. Um, I'm not sure that the Housing Commission is that. Uh, while it has brought together a whole range of politicians, uh, councillors, uh, people from the sector, different areas, uh, different expertise, um, I still don't know that that is exactly what it is. And it its remit was to look 10 years out as well. So that's, you know, we have a we have an issue that we need to resolve today. And we have an issue that we need. Now, in fairness, I've, and I've said this on a regular basis as well, housing can't be resolved overnight and housing won't be resolved in a period of two years. And I think part of it is that we have this sense of we must do more now in order to make things happen. Well, there are certain things we can do now that will help to stabilise, but not actually... Do what it needs to do, which is house everybody over time um, or create the opportunity for housing over time. I think some things we need to do now are things like stabilize the situate the security for current renters. I think that is something we could do today or tomorrow. You know, we could pass legislation very quickly for that. We could do something in respect of keeping the landlords that are in the private sector in the sector today. That's utilizing either tax breaks in a particular way or utilizing some other methodology that allows them to invest in a way that gives them that level of security too. And we haven't addressed those issues. Now, there are two issues we can do immediately. We're already spending four, actually four billion a year on social and affordable housing. And there's been talks about increases in that over the last weekend in terms of what goes to developers to develop more affordable housing. Um, so actually money's not our problem in this state at this point in time. In you know, we've got 10 billion surplus next year, 12 billion the year after, 16 the year after that. So we're not Money is not our problem. There's a wall of money that could be invested in different ways. Our problem is that we're not addressing, we're not targeting it at the places it needs to be as effectively as we could do. Um, John, it seems bizarre to me that uh, somebody coming from the approved housing body sector <laughs> is talking about the need for tax incentives to stimulate supply and to keep the current uh, stock of landlords that we have in the market. Now, don't get me wrong, obviously the industry has been calling for this. Mm. Um, and, and to me, it comes down to a real lack of political bravery, uh, a lack of political bravery to, to be honest with, the, with your voters and say, actually, the only way to address so many of our housing challenges is new supply. And the yeah. only way to get new supply is to, to make it attractive for people to be yeah. able to either come in or stay in or develop. And yeah. I look, I, I genuinely think that that conversation has started to shift in the last 12 months, mm. but that's five, six years too late. And, and I yeah. attribute that to a lack of political bravery, notwithstanding what you said there that, you know, I, I fully accept that politicians have a difficult job, but I do believe there's been a, a real lack of bravery to say in public what they are saying in private and what they're saying yeah. in private is that they know the need, you know, like the help to buy while positioned as a buyer's relief was absolutely a supply side initiative. And if yeah. only they'd been brave enough a couple of years ago when that initiative was coming out to say, this is how we tackle supply. Um, yeah. and, and to me, that's been a huge failing and I don't see that changing. Well, and first of all, I agree with you. I, I don't see it changing in the short term. But and I also agree with you. I think there's a degree of uh, a lack of bravery. Uh, I think it's the way you phrased it, and some of the political decisions that are being made. But I think what people are missing, and what's not being explained to the public, and I think they deserve to understand it, is that actually 
this, if you if you provide these opportunities uh, for the supply side to be improved, you actually provide the opportunity for more social housing. You provide the opportunity for more first-time buyers. You provide the opportunity for more private rented. It's not that yes, somebody has to benefit out of this, and unlike you know, likely that the developers will actually make some profit. I think there's a misnomer at the moment that developers are making huge gains at this point in time. At this point in time, I don't think they are because of the way costs have gone, the way interest rates have gone. They are making money, don't get me wrong, but it's not not what not the obscene levels that used to be there back in the late 90s or early 2000s uh, in the Celtic Tiger times. It is much tighter. But I still think there's room, and this is where I say you bring everybody together because I still think there's room to do things that help the delivery. So, for example... And it's you know this goes back to the 1970s. Now, thankfully, I wasn't oh, I'm not old enough to remember, but I've read the report several times when the Kenny report came out and said control land prices. And we're now talking about doing that in different ways. We're not saying it's exactly that, but we're saying you know tax on vacant properties, tax on vacant land, tax on zoned land that's unused. That's all controlling land prices, and that's a good thing and should continue. But also. There's also nonsensical elements. So, for example, we heard uh, over the weekend that they're now talking about, uh, I think it's suspending is the word that they use, the, the development levies. I think that's absolutely right. If we're to, the level of bureaucracy that goes into and cost that goes into just getting to site is very significant. And there's no benefit because you can't be guaranteed you're getting to site. So there's a whole range of things that could be done in respect yeah. to that. For example, VAT on social housing is a misnomer unaffordable housing. It's a misnomer. Why have we got it? Because it's a cash flow that goes around the circle of government. So you know, we pay the developer, the developer has to pay to the state, the state pays it back to us because we then invest it in more housing. It shouldn't happen. If you take it out, you immediately reduce the cost and you reduce the rent that's being charged on the affordable housing. So there's an immediate benefits that could be there, but it's seen as giving developers a benefit. And the reality is it's not. It's creating additional supply, which if it wasn't there, uh, you, you you don't get the housing that you need. So I I am, I agree with you. I think there's some uh, element of bravery that's required, uh, but also just sense, common sense. Bring together some of the, that thinking that is out there with others. Uh, look, uh, is it, um, I can't remember who, which of the scientists it was that said, that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different answer, you're you're insane. And I think we're at that point, really. We, we need something that's radically different and we're not there. The emergency powers bit, I actually do think should be implemented, particularly around planning. Uh, and just as an example for Circle, we have we have a scheme that's in judicial review, has been for two years. You know, for 150 apartments that would bring uh, 150 families relief, uh, people who would be living locally, 50% of them would be for social and 50% of them would be affordable housing. So we're creating and we're bringing that relief to an economy in a particular area that actually needs and more people in it to be able to thrive. And that's not happening because of judicial review. I have my own views in respect for it. I'm sure that if I express them, I might be sued, so I better not do that. Uh, but needless to say, I don't believe that the, the reasons it's in your judicial review are appropriate reasons to stop something that's really strategic infrastructure. Yeah, look, to be perfectly honest, that's, that's a view that we hear um, on this show, certainly uh, on a regular basis. And we know that judicial reviews have been have been used not for their intended purposes. And, you know, I try not to 
use the term NIMBY too often on the show here, but there's a huge element of that, that not in my backyard. There is a huge element. And I fully appreciate that there are some genuine, uh, that mm-hmm. there are some genuine concerns around development. And I, I understand. Um, and by the way, I'm a huge proponent of public consultation and community engagement. Absolutely. In fact, I actually think you touched on a really great point there. And you know what I term probably as, as lack of political bravery, I think you really kind of, pointed to the antidote there or the possible solution whereby we really involve the community in the decisions. Because in a way, it's quite patronising to think that the community doesn't understand that actually um, by stopping development or by the state not empowering uh, the people who can deliver housing, mm-hmm. um, that we're in somehow doing the, the, our, our, the constituency a favour. It's the very opposite. And yeah. actually, in a way, if we were to to like planning is a public function. Um, so actually, if we were to explain the mechanisms in, in a way that actually engages the community and brings them in in a more meaningful way, then actually the chances are they would be on board with that because even if they're sitting pretty in their three or four bed semi with the front and back garden and off street parking, chances are they've adult children or grandchildren who can't afford to rent a, rent a room in a house, not to talk about a house in their yeah. 20s and 30s. Um, so I think that's a really great point, maybe not talking down to the community and really engaging them. Um, John, in terms of our social housing targets, because obviously that's been in the news a lot over the last week, um, are our social housing targets realistic? Um, are they realistic? Good point. Um, good question. The I would say they're underestimated as to what they should be. Okay, so for example, uh, I, I think recent results, recent surveys and recent uh, research has shown that we need between 45,000 and 66,000 homes per year for the next 10 years. Uh, I would absolutely agree with the, the research that's gone into that suggests that. And in fairness, yes, yes, or I, uh, back in 2016, I think it was, was suggesting 45,000 homes per year was required on an annual basis for at least 10 years uh, to catch up with what we have. And don't forget, those figures are really looking at what the current demographic is suggesting. It didn't factor in the 80,000 or 160,000, as it might end up being, uh, refugees that we're bringing in from other countries that actually we should be supporting. So I think we are underestimating at this point in time the level of social and affordable housing that's required. Um, the bit we're not projecting and the bit that we should be projecting is what do we need in the social, in the, the private rented sector. We're not actually talking about it. We're talking about the fact that people are leaving, but I don't hear somebody saying or anybody saying what that should look like in terms of what it, the investment in it should look like, because I think that's a really important part for the future as well, as I, I keep saying. Um, so are they realistic? No, I think they're too low. Can we deliver them? I don't believe we can do. I don't believe we can deliver the current targets to the extent that we need to. Uh, and I know the government have come out and said that they're they're looking at potentially 33,000 homes per year as being the target. We need... It's not a lack of money, by the way, that or a lack of will. It's a lack of resource to actually deliver it. So the the people who are actually building brick and brick or who are using the modern methods of uh, construction in terms of the modular construction are not available or don't have the capacity. We don't have the people. We know when Housing for All was written that we had 24,000 people short in terms of what we needed within our housing sector to deliver. And we also, it also suggested that we needed a a further 80,000 people in order to be able to deliver the extended targets beyond uh, the 20 year, uh, 2026. So we haven't got the demographic in the country to help us deliver them. And we need to be doing more to make sure we bring them. Now it's a catch 22 situation. 
bring more people. We need more housing. <laughs> we need more housing to house those people who are going to come. So it is a very difficult one to get right. Um, again, I believe there's a huge focus on trying to deliver that. But uh, and I, I, can I say, I actually think housing for all is a really good plan uh, in terms of an overall strategic plan. Like most things and like most plans, uh, delves into detail and like all good plans you know i think it was mike tyson unfortunately who said it that you know as soon as you get hit in the face in the first punch you know your plan changes and i think that's where we're at where we've had our we've had the you know the the uh, punch in the face with the pandemic we've had the punch in the face with the changing in interest rates with the high levels of inflation we need to keep modifying i actually think we need stability in the policy mm-hmm. so all of these Little additional announcements that are being made, great, but confusing. But stick to the plan if we believe the plan is the right plan for the long term. I think it is. Uh, I think the figures overall probably need to be moved. But to do that, we need to bring the additional resources into the country to help deliver that. Um, I, 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 I think that's a great point you're making about um, it, not so much the construction industry's capacity, because we know that that's ramping up. And in fact, they've been frustrated and hamstrung yeah. by, by policy and an unprecedentedly d- uh, difficult confluence of circumstances from mm. Brexit to the pandemic to the war in Ukraine. You know, so actually there's been um, there's been some, I, I suppose, some factors that were really unprecedented coming together. But um, through MMC Ireland, we're seeing this huge uh, scaling up and ramping up of capacity in Ireland, um, mm. you know, th- that that the government to be fair is acknowledging and trying to resource but Mm -hmm. you're right we actually need in order to scale up construction we need people to do it and in fact just this morning i was reading that um a survey released um showed that 70 percent of businesses in galway um, are actually reducing their hiring due to accommodation shortages now that's not construction specific that's all all businesses but 70 percent of businesses not hiring to the level they were going to hire, not because of business coming in the door or income, mm. but, but not having places for those yeah. people, for those workers to live. That's a huge problem. And I, I find it so frustrating when you talk about this wall of money. And I think for anybody listening in, that's what they will find the most frustrating, that yeah. there is there is the money there to solve this problem and it's still not being solved. But you're right. Yeah. The stability, the stability is such an important factor. And um, before we finish up today, and I'm conscious of your time, thank you so much for being sure. so generous with your time. And um, one of the other, you know, because we talked a little bit about, you know, we, we can call it political ideology, but, you know, it comes down to even simpler terms. And that is, you know, perfect is the enemy of done. Um, mm. And in this, we've seen a lot of criticism in the media around long term leasing, which, by the way, when you break down the figures, I can understand. Um, however, again, Perfect is the enemy of done. So how important is long-term leasing for the moment? And I said to you, I think it's absolutely vital. I think it was a I think I think of all the decisions that were taken in housing fraud, that was the the one that was the the incorrect one. And I and I've been very public in saying this. My view is that and you know, evidence has shown that on the day that it was announced, effectively we lost nearly four thousand properties uh, that could have been delivered over a two-year basis on the, because of the insecurity or the uncertainty that was built into a process. Now, I actually believe that the government are right to say we need a different uh, a different agreement. We need a different process, but actually. Long-term long-term leasing is one of the has always been in Ireland and particularly in the bigger cities, Dublin, Cork, Galway. 
the biggest delivery of homes to people. And I think to have said, we're not doing long-term leasing because of vulture funds was the wrong approach. I think they're right to say we want to moderate how investment funds are utilized and what the benefit to the state is longer term in respect to those. So I think it is right to say we need a different deal at the end or we need a different deal in, during the process. And in fairness, the targeted leasing uh, uh, initiative was kind of aimed at that. I think it needed a bit of rethink in terms of what it was asking for, but I think there is an opportunity. So for me, I would absolutely advocate for a long-term leasing. I think it is a, a, an ideal way of ensuring stability, growth, but also certainty for the sector in terms of getting, it takes two years to three years to build an apartment block. You know, if you're building as we should be doing in the right kinds of densities, it takes that period of time. If you haven't got certainty over how that's going to be delivered, if you've got uncertainty how that's going to be funded over the long, long term, it isn't going to get built. So you immediately create, take away that opportunity. So for me, it is, I would be advocating very strongly, both from a social, affordable and private sector pr perspective, that long-term leasing should be available within the country on a greater scale. And um, John, how many uh, how many homes does Circle VHA currently have under management? We own and manage uh, more than two uh, two thousand seven hundred and fifty homes, uh, and our pipeline for delivery for the next three years is nearly three thousand homes. And how many people does that equate to? Do you know? Uh, in terms of who we currently, it's it's nearly ten thousand uh, people in current uh, accommodation. Uh, and obviously for the future, it'll be, you know, nearly four times that. Um, I, I suppose we're very aware of the difficulties um, facing everybody across the housing sector. Um, and I work um, more with the, the private sector than the public sector, but I have huge admiration for what's been done in the public sector right now. And I suppose I, I was in this industry at a time, you know, when we had housing charities kind of 20 years ago that were really struggling mm. to make an impact in terms of numbers. And when we look at the scale of delivery across mm. the, the leading approved housing bodies in Ireland right now, it's phenomenal. It's absolutely mm. phenomenal. So I have a huge respect for that. And I think, you know, it, it's one of the areas that I'm really happy to see resourced. Um, mm. But I don't, I don't, um, I, I'm not naive as to the challenges and how difficult mm. that must be on a daily basis. So I suppose for you as the CEO of Circle BHA, like what constitutes a good day in work for you? <laughs> well, well, a great day is when you can hand keys across to people who really need them. That's, that's to be honest, that's why I'm 30 years in the business. Uh, I've, I got hooked by uh, the impact that it created 30 years ago, and I'm still here as a result of it. Uh, so that that's a really good day. Uh, a good day is also when you get something that approved from a planning perspective, because that's one of the key difficulties. Uh, we're very fortunate in Circle, as are most of our colleagues in the sector, that we have really good funders uh, in terms of the Housing Finance Agency, AIB, Bank of Ireland, others that we work with, and and who actually are very have have invested in really understanding what the sector needs and how it works. Um, I have to also say that our one of our key partners is our local authorities and the local authorities that we work with. We we work in 21 different local authorities. Uh, if you take some of the bigger associations, they work across every town and every village. Uh, and without the local authorities, we wouldn't do what we do. We couldn't do what we do. So we're very appreciative of the work that we do with them. And I find that 
both the elected elected officers, but also the, the 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 executives that work within those probably don't get as as much recognition as they should do because of the the difficulties that they're dealing with on a day to day basis. Um, so I, I would like to acknowledge them. But uh, so for a good day, yeah, good day is uh, being able to say we can deliver more housing. And uh, like we've we've got let's say three thousand in our pipeline for the next uh, three years. We'd like it to be six thousand. Uh, we believe we've we we know we have the capacity to deliver that. It's finding those homes. It's getting them to a point where they can be built is the issue. Very good. John, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. That was John Hannigan, CEO of Circle BHA. And that's all we've time for today. Um, so, Thanks, again, John. John, thank you for sharing your expertise and giving us that insight kind of into the, the third sector. Um, so my thanks today to producer Katie Talon and to the production team at Hear Me Roar Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out other real estate and construction shows on iProperty Radio. Huge thanks to our show sponsor, Property District, your industry communications partner for making these conversations possible. And thank you for tuning in. We'll we'll catch you at the next episode of Property Roundup on iProperty Radio.